You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Good morning. Peace be with you. Hi, my name's Claire, and I'm a member here at Sojourn Montrose. As Christians, we're all about God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, and so therefore we go to the Bible every week because that is where he has clearly revealed himself in his word. Uh, For this week's sermon, please turn with me to Genesis 12.10. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, the words are going to be on the screen behind me, and we also have several over on the table by the door, um, and we... And we'd love for you to take one home today. Uh, great. Uh, this week, the text is Genesis 12, 10 through 20. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 12, 10. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, If I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the word of the Lord. Morning and peace be with you. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Cole, and I'm one of the pastors here. It is really good to be with you this morning as we continue our journey through the narrative of Abram, who becomes Abraham in the book of Genesis. Uh, The life of Abraham and the narrative surrounding his life are really essential for us as Christians to understand who we are as the church, um, to understand the fulfillment the fullness of the accomplishments of Jesus. And the life of Abraham gives us an opportunity to learn about a life of faith, as Abraham is uh, constantly pointed to by Jesus and the apostles as uh, the quintessential man of faith um, from whom we ought to learn. And, and the first who, who is said to have had righteousness counted to him by God because of his faith. And so... Um, As we prepare to jump in this morning, let's pray and then see what the Lord has for us as we spend some time in the Word. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning. We thank you for your precious Word and for all of the ways that you have blessed us in your Son, Jesus. As we 
spend time this morning looking at a narrative that is complex and a story that raises lots of questions. I pray that by your spirit you would give us wisdom, that you'd give us eyes to see what it is that you want us to glean from it, ears to hear your good news in the midst of us, and that you would leave us as a people who are transformed by your grace and by having heard from you in your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, for those of you in the room who are Christians, which I assume is most of you, uh, given that this is a Christian Sunday gathering, um, I'm guessing that you, or at least people that you're close to, have experienced something that you might call a, a spiritual high. Maybe you went to camp as a high schooler and the gospel became real to you in a way that was totally fresh, and and you left and went home with this fire in your heart for the things of God, ready to serve and to cast off the ways of the world that you'd been walking in, ready to share the good news of Jesus. Maybe you became a Christian later in life and experienced radical transformation and, and realized kind of overnight that your life is now totally different and that your purpose in life is totally different. And you develop this deep zeal for the things of God, for obeying the scriptures, for sharing your faith with others. Maybe you experience God speak to you powerfully through his word or through prayer or through a sermon like this morning. Uh, maybe in the midst of trial, in the midst of wandering, God spoke to you in a way that, that it changed you. It made you aware of his grace for you, his love for you, and, and you experienced a season of, of zeal and fervor and faith. And the reason for these experiences is that when God speaks in power, God's people are moved to action. It is a powerful thing to hear the voice of the Lord. It's a life-changing thing to be made aware of the gospel of grace. But for most of us, this spiritual high, this mountaintop experience fades away, right? Real life becomes real life again. The, the concerns of our life become relentless. And, and so, so we find that we may not be who we were before we heard God's voice or experienced the gospel in a new way or, or had this moment of transformation, but we don't generally maintain the spiritual fervor or zeal that we had immediately following that experience. Our faith gets tested. We're faced with real fears, dangerous temptations, reasons to doubt the promises of God that seemed so obviously trustworthy before when we were on the mountaintop. All of a sudden, they're, they're seeming less trustworthy. And for many Christians, the fading high of the spiritual ecstasy and the drivenness that it creates, when that fades, it can cause a spiritual crisis. And for some, it leads to leaving the faith altogether. Because if we reduce God to a feeling or a revelatory voice that we're constantly expecting or a sensation in our heart and soul that we're constantly counting on, then when the keen awareness of God's presence fades from our consciousness, we're left to believe that that either that, that experience we had in the past that we thought was real was just our imagination, 
or, or that for some reasons God's, God's love for us, his care for us, his blessing toward us has been removed or that, that he just isn't there in the first place. And faith and union with God, they can't be reduced to feelings because what a fleeting thing are our emotions and our experiences. What we see in the beginning of Genesis 12 from last week is that God spoke to a man named Abram. Abram was from a pagan land, the land that eventually becomes Babylon and was part of what was likely a pagan family. By all guesses, um, Abram and his family worshipped the moon in vain. And so when Abram heard the voice of the living God call him and make promises to him, it was a life-changing moment for Abram. It was so life-changing and so compelling, in fact, that he was willing to risk his life, his reputation, and his ties to the land of his kindred, where by all accounts he had wealth and comfort to enter into this journey to a land that God had not revealed to him in an undisclosed location for a period of time that he did not know how long. The promises God gave him on face value were not very trustworthy. God promised him that he would become a great nation through offspring, and he and his wife are in late middle age, and they have an inability to conceive, and yet when Abram hears the voice of God, he believes and he moves. And he experiences this mountaintop sensation. They travel into the land of Canaan, and Abram is worshiping the Lord in this new land, and God says, I'm going to eventually give you this land. And while they're in the land, Abram begins making converts. He's proclaiming the name of the Lord, and souls are added to his happy caravan of Yahweh worshipers in this land and world that were devoid of true faith. But then when we get to verse 10 in chapter 12, we will see something that I think we'll be able to relate to our lives. It says, now there was a famine in the land. And so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So the key to the promises that God gave him were, was his wife's fertility, right? You're going to be a great nation. And he was promised offspring, but what we know about Sarai is that she was barren. Secondarily, as a key to the promise that God gave him, was the land that God was going to give him. And he had already revealed that it's going to be this land of Canaan. And now the land, like his wife, is barren too. There's a famine. And so Abram, who was up, goes down. He goes down to Egypt. Egypt is south on the map, but the Bible uses phrases like went down to describe something more symbolic. Abram's faith was commendable. It was fruit producing. But now in the midst of famine, he leaves the land of promise to go to a land of worldly prosperity. Now, the Bible doesn't necessarily give us reason to think poorly of Abram for going down to Egypt. That would be conjecture. Um, The whole passage is full of Abram making choices of potential moral or spiritual hazard in which were not given commentary from the author Moses or from the voice of God within the text. And so all the decisions that Abram made were left to wonder, was that the right choice? Was that the wrong choice? And some of them we can interpret in light of passages to come. But Abram's going down to Egypt, we know might not be morally bad, but it is certainly foreshadowing 
of, of a bad thing to come. Nothing good happens in Egypt in the Bible. So, so maybe there was nothing wrong in Abram's choice to go down. I mean, the land of Canaan was already revealed to be this future thing for Abram, so there wasn't necessarily anything that meant he had to stay there in the present. And Egypt was supported by the fertile Nile River Valley, meaning that in the Near Eastern world, Egypt was the least susceptible to prolonged famine. And so Abram knew, we can go to, to Egypt. I have all these people and animals to feed. We'll just go to Egypt. But maybe it reveals a lack of trust in the Lord. Maybe it reveals a wavering sense of confidence in the promises that God gave him. We don't know for sure. But what we do know is Egypt proves to be a place in the Bible of trial, of slavery, of bondage, and of testing for God's people. And this is the first journey to Egypt in the Bible. And it paints a picture of a future journey to Egypt in the Bible that will come. Let's read the passage beginning with the first few verses. Beginning again in verse 10, it says, Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So Abram was confident to follow God when he was called in the beginning of chapter 12. But now he's doubting and he's preparing half-truths. We know it's a half-truth. Later in Genesis chapter 20, we realize that it's not totally untrue for Abram to call his wife his sister. That's another conversation for another day. And there's a way in this passage to read Abram charitably. He believes in the promises of God, but doesn't yet understand the fullness of God's power. He just met God. And so, so now he's trying to protect the promises of God on his own. He's trying to make sure that they come to pass. So he's making sure that he and his family live so that they can become all they're supposed to become. And he knows none of these promises come to pass if I die in Egypt. We never inherit the land. We never become a great nation. So maybe there's an ounce of faith in this decision. But there's still obvious cowardice in the decision of Abram. He puts his life above his wife's safety and, his, and her purity. It's easy to see the folly in this action when we see similar behavior later in the Bible. right? Abram is a type of Peter who was given the keys to the kingdom of God by Jesus, and then in the moment of his testing, denied his true love, our Lord, to save his own neck. But then on the flip side, we see all throughout the book of Acts, occasions for first-generation Christians to deny Jesus, to save themselves, but instead they hold fast in their confidence in the Lord and his promises. And what happens in those moments? The kingdom marches forth in power. Stephen the martyr comes to mind. It was in these moments of courage and faith that the truth of God and the power of his kingdom marched forward with unrivaled power. And so this is a bleak moment in Egypt. But the problem here is not primarily with Abram's lack of honesty, as we find later in chapter 20. 
Sarai is from his father's line. Most likely, she was his half-sister or his niece, both of which would have been colloquially honest in a Near Eastern culture to refer to as a sister. The problem is a lack of faith and an abundance of self-concern. In fact, I don't think that faith and an abundance of self-concern can coexist in the human heart. But this is a real temptation for all of God's children when we're faced with trying circumstances. How often are we too tempted to take the promises of God into our own hands, thus trusting ourselves and protecting ourselves over trusting God and over loving others? We do this with our children, with our money, with our schedules, with our careers. We do this all the time. Let's keep reading. It says, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is your sister? So that I took her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and with all that he had. So Abram's fears were founded, and his expectation of what was to come was borderline prophetic. He saw the writing on the wall entering Egypt. Everything he was concerned about came to pass. And and Sarai's beauty was overwhelming to the Egyptians. She's taken into the house of the king. Now, just so you know, when we're reading the scriptures, Pharaoh is the title for the Egyptian king. It's not a name of a specific Egyptian king. So this isn't the same Pharaoh from the days of Moses. It's just the Pharaoh of Egypt at the time. But she enters Pharaoh's house, essentially into his harem of concubines. And Abram is given many gifts by Pharaoh either as a sign of a formal friendship that's budding or maybe as a kind of bride price. We're not told exactly why, but he's given livestock and wealth and things. And yet Pharaoh and his house were plagued with many plagues because of Pharaoh's possession of Sarai. And so Pharaoh sent Abram away with Sarai and all of his possessions, including those he acquired from Pharaoh. And so Abram made bad choices, and yet it goes well for him and his house. They leave with more than they had to start. This is a strange story, right? There's all sorts of things happening that, that we're not expecting. We're not expecting this man of faith to act like a coward. We're not expecting his cowardice to go well for him. And at first glance, if this story is primarily about Abram and Sarai, then it's just a really confusing story. What do we draw from it? But this isn't a story that's primarily about Abram or Sarai. This is a story about God and his plan to redeem the world through his promises. It's a story about his sovereignty and his faithfulness, a story about his mercy and his power. It's a story about God choosing a man who quickly loses confidence in God and zeal that he had for God, and God's not surprised by this. That's good news, church. 
God wasn't surprised when Abram decided to head down to Egypt out of the land of promise. He wasn't surprised when Abram began to treat his wife's body as a human shield to save his own neck. Abram didn't live up to the glory of God, and God wasn't surprised. That's good news, because nobody lives up to the glory of God, and God is never surprised when we fail to do so. God wasn't going to let Abram die in Egypt because God made promises to Abram. And God's promises don't go away when we fail. God made promises to Abram, so he didn't let him die in Egypt. He didn't allow the the woman Sarai, from whom the great nation would be brought forth, to become a concubine of a pagan king. That wasn't part of what God had promised, and so God did not allow it to come to pass. God was going to see his promises to fulfillment even when his people weren't worthy of his promises being fulfilled. Even when the odds were against them, even when their zeal and faith were overcome by fear and self-concern, church, take heart in this. This is a passage full of good news. God's promises will come to pass in your life and in his kingdom even when you falter. God's care for you will endure even when you doubt him. God's love for you will win the day even when your love for yourself seems like the loudest thing in the room. Our sin, though damaging to you and to those around you, will not prevent the kingdom of God from coming. It will not prevent the kingdom of God from coming. But your sin will have consequences. And it will delay the return of that feeling of the pleasure of God. The confidence that you once had in his love. Abram left Egypt with his wife by his side and with more wealth in his estate. But I doubt he left Egypt with the satisfaction of one who was brave and faithful in the face of trial and temptation. I doubt he really left Egypt with more than he took there. We experience the pleasure of God when we hold fast to him in faith. We enjoy him most when we obey him with trust. Especially, brothers and sisters, when it is hard. One of the apostles challenges his readers who are a little boastful about their faith, and he says, have you endured to the point of shedding blood? And yet it is our Lord who endured to the point of shedding blood, who enjoyed the Lord the most. Of course we will fail, but the joy of the Lord is found when we are trusting in him, delighting in him, having confidence in him above all else. Like the apostles who walked away from a good old-fashioned whipping with smiles on their faces because they got whipped in the name of King Jesus. They didn't cower, and it was worth it. This passage is not only about the prevailing nature of the providence of God, it's about the overwhelming mercy of God for sinful people. When Abram faltered, God could have left him in Egypt or allowed disaster to befall his wife. Instead, he looked upon Abram and he blessed him. He blessed him just like he had promised to. And he looked upon Sarai in captivity in a foreign land and he saved her with a mighty and outstretched arm. This passage is a preview of things to come in the days after Abram's offspring. 
um, start to become an increasingly great nation. A few generations after Abram, his offspring begin to form this very large family that will become the nation Israel. And at the end of the book of Genesis that we're currently in, the patriarchs of Israel will experience famine in Canaan. And they will go down to Egypt looking for help. And for 400 years, they will be held in captivity in the house of Pharaoh, like Sarai. And again, God will plague Pharaoh with many plagues until Pharaoh gets so angry and so afraid that he sends the people of God away after they have plundered Egypt of all their gold. This is not only a preview of the Exodus to come, but it's a preview of the Exodus of our Lord Jesus. See, God established presence in the house of Satan, the truer Pharaoh on this very earth. Jesus took on flesh to be among a people who were enslaved by sin, and he went down into the depths to plunder Satan and hell of all the riches of the power of the fear of death, bearing the punishment for the sins of Abram and all who came before him and all who came after him. He was cast out of the grave and sent away with a beautiful bride in tow, his church. You, brothers and sisters. His sister and his bride, the church, was the plunder that Christ took from the grave. And he is now taking his bride toward the fullness of the blessings of the promises of God. That truer Canaan when all things are made new. And so today we sit in these promises when we are called as God's family to go into the proverbial Egypt of the world of sin and to proclaim the life of God in Christ to those who are dead in their sin, we will be faced with trials, temptations, and those who seek to take us captive for all sorts of reasons. And yet God will see us to the very end. Above all, this passage shows us that when God calls you, he calls you not because you have done anything to deserve his call or because of what you bring to the table. He called Abram out of the land of pagans to be the forefather of his great nation. And he has called you out of whatever circumstance you were born into or were in at the moment that he called you. Not because you bring anything to offer him. He calls people of his own secret will, apart from their merit, to glorify himself by redeeming and using people in the establishment of the outcomes of his promises, namely his kingdom. And when he calls you to himself, brothers and sisters, his love for you will remain. He will be your God when you are high on his promises. His love for you will remain in those times. When you're raising your hands and clapping them in the sanctuary, when you're pouring over the scriptures with a smile on your face, when you're praying, praying fervently and expectantly, when you're sharing the good news of Jesus with your friends and family, he will be your God, but he will also be your God when you are full of fear, when you're full of doubt, when you are overcome by spiritual apathy, when your faith, faith falters in the midst of trial, he will be your God. His plan for you and for his kingdom will still come to pass even when you are not worthy of it, even when you've done nothing to help, even when everything about any relationship with a person would say, run from this person, God will remain. He will be your God. 
His plan for you, he tells us in his scriptures, is that you will be transformed from one degree of glory to the next until you experience life with him forever and the fulfillment of all of his promises in his everlasting and eternal kingdom. That promise will come to pass. If you are his child, regardless of where you are in your faith, regardless of how obedient you've been, regardless of how excited you've been lately about the things of God, that promise for you will come to pass if you remain his child. His plan for his kingdom will come to pass too. His plan is that it will be great, that it will be numerous, that it will be a blessing for the whole created order for all of eternity, and that too will come to pass. And so, church, he will be your God when you are in the land of Canaan and when you journey down into Egypt. He will be your God. He will be your God when you lie so that you can protect your ego or your flesh. He will be your God. He'll be your God when the works of others lead you into a situation where you're vulnerable and helpless like Sarai. He will be your God and he will redeem you with a mighty and an outstretched arm. He will be your God when when you don't deserve his love. He will not forsake you. He will not forget you. When you don't deserve his forgiveness, he will still have mercy for you. When you fail to look to him in faith, he will continue to push you forward in the plan of redemption so that you will reach the end, the salvation of your souls. Abram went down to Egypt and made a lot of bad choices and God, through Pharaoh, pushed him back toward Canaan. The thing is, brothers and sisters, Your God has made a promise to you. He's given you an inheritance, and that inheritance is secure. It is kept in heaven for you. It is unfading. It is imperishable. So the call this morning, in light of Abram's faltering in Egypt, is to keep moving forward in faith, to proclaim his name gladly, wherever it is that you are, to trust in his unending love, his undeserved grace, his relentless mercy for you, and to be transformed. We can take away from this passage that the trustworthiness of God and his gospel must never be dependent upon our feelings, our actions, our circumstances, or our response to or recognition of his voice. God's trustworthiness is a self-contained and self-defined and self-fulfilling trustworthiness. God isn't trustworthy based on whether or not you trust him. He's trustworthy because he's God. God's truth is true when you feel it and can't contain the new song that's been placed in your heart because you feel it and when you feel far from him and can't hear his voice above the noise of your own sin or your circumstances. Some of you this morning have been wandering through the land of Egypt making compromises. You've been afraid You've experienced a spiritual famine. You've made compromises and choices that you're not happy with. And, you've, and it's left you feeling alone and exiled away from the presence of God. God sees you this morning. So turn to him in faith. He sees you this morning and his promises for you are still true. Leave Egypt having plundered it for what it's worth. 
ready to experience the fullness of the kingdom of God in repentance and in faith. Your God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he has plundered the very gates of hell for you so that you can experience life and the true Canaan of his blessedness forever. So let's pray and let's feast at the table he's prepared for us, regardless of how we arrived this morning.